Welcome to Smalltalk Reflections, a weekly podcast for discussing and promoting the Smalltalk programming language. On this episode, we talk about blocks. My name is David Buck, and with me today is Craig Latta. Hi, Craig. Hi, David. How are you? Not too bad. You've been busy lately. Yeah, very busy. I've been at a lot of conferences. Last week, I was at Faro Days in Lille, France, and then I went straight to FOSTEM 2015, the big European open source conference in Brussels. So you made two conferences within one week. Yeah, they were each two days and they were four days in a row of conferences. I don't recommend it, but it was a lot of fun and I think I've recovered. So what was Faraday's like? Faraday's was cool. That was at INRIA, the French National Research Institute. And it was hosted by uh, Stéphane Ducasse and Marcus Dunker and the rest of the Faro team. And it was just really cool to put faces to all the names from the Faro mailing list and you know, hear people speak at more length than you get from an email thread. Yeah, that's one of the good things about conferences. Is you can get to see people that you've never seen in person. Yeah. And uh, let's see, what else? what else? It was just nonstop. You know? Even when we're out in the hallway having a coffee, you know, everyone was networking. There's just so much to catch up on. Hmm, excellent. And uh, then FOSTEM, how was that? FOSTEM is also highly chaotic, but I'm used to it. This was my fourth time there, and so I kind of know the ropes there. Stefan Echermont runs a great small talk dev room there that ends with a tutorial session that's like two hours long. And just, they're just a bunch of great talks all through the day leading up to it. I gave a talk about Squeak.js, the JavaScript-based VM for Squeak that Bert Fordenberg has done. Excellent. Is that uh, going to be online somewhere? Yeah, all the talks at FOSTEM are video recorded very nicely by the staff. They've built up a great machine for doing that. I gave talks at FOSTEM last year as well, one about the state of Squeak and another one called A Spoonful of Raspberry Pi about my minimal VM work on the Raspberry Pi. And so you can see those already. And they should have the raw footage for this year's videos out to us in a couple of weeks. So I plan to do an edit of that. The talk went really well, yeah. I understand they have a new version of the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, it just came out as I was getting back from the conference, which was great because my Raspberry Pi died while I was on the road. <laughs> In fact, I wasn't even going to talk about Squeak.js when I set up for Brussels. I was going to talk about more distributed computation stuff and modularity and so on with the Context project. But just before I was going to give that talk at FOSTEM, my Raspberry Pi uh, died. And so I changed topics completely, wrote a talk about Squeak.js like in the hour before I was supposed to speak. Uh, it turned into a great lightning talk. Yeah. It sounds tense. <laughs> yeah, but as I say, FOSTEM is just like that, so uh, it doesn't feel strange. So I understand that uh, you've made some uh, connections for an upcoming interview that we're going to be doing uh, on this podcast. Yeah, I had some nice discussions with uh, Stefan Ducasse while I was at Faraday's, and uh, he's keen to be an interviewee for the podcast, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, definitely. We'll schedule that in really soon. Uh, one more uh, thing on my side is uh, an announcement of something coming up in Ottawa. I'm going to be organizing the Camp Small Talk Ottawa in uh, June of this year, 2015, June 12th, 13th, and 14th. And uh, we're going to be holding it uh, in downtown Ottawa in the offices of Shopify. It's a local company. They do primarily Ruby work, but they're uh, very friendly to other, uh, other languages. And in fact, uh, some former small talkers are working there 
at Shopify. So uh, they'll be helping us out. So I'll have some uh, more formal announcements as we get closer to the time, but uh, Camp Small Talk Ottawa in the spring of 2015. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about blocks. We've mentioned them before in other episodes, but we'll go into a little bit more depth in this one. Um, Let's start out. Uh, What are blocks? I normally explain it to people who've never seen it before as it's just an object that contains code inside it that you can run later with some subtleties. <laughs> yeah, you, you can think of them as sort of free-floating methods, uh, methods that don't need a method dictionary. You can store them as values in you know, slots of some other object. They, they're sort of similar to, um, in Java, I guess, there's something called anonymous inner classes. It's basically a class that doesn't have a name that you, you fit inside another, another class. But they're much more flexible than that. Um, the, the blocks in Smalltalk are full lexical closures, as, as you've mentioned, and we'll discuss that in a few minutes. But uh, they also are defined in line in the method, so you don't have to go out to another method or another piece of code to find out what the block is. Right. So blocks in Smalltalk are delimited by square brackets. And this often gets people confused when they get started. Uh, They see round brackets and they see square brackets and they say, what's the difference? Well, square brackets don't evaluate their contents immediately. They create a block, which you can run later. Round brackets always evaluate immediately. So that's my explanation for that. Yeah. And in fact, the implementation of blocks in some small tech implementations shares a lot in common with how normal methods are implemented. So there is actually some concrete shared behavior between normal methods and blocks. Absolutely. The nice thing about blocks is that they uh, have their own variables that they maintain inside them. So for instance, you can actually declare temporary variables inside a block, and those temporary variables will be local to that block and not accessible outside. But they're accessible to all blocks inside this block. At um, one place where I work, I had, we have a person who's fairly new to Smalltalk, and he came to me uh, the other day and said, uh, can blocks be recursive? Like, Can you recurse over a block? Can you have a block call itself? And I said, oh, absolutely. There's no problem doing that. You, you often will do that if you're inside some sort of script and you can't just create a new method. Uh, just create a block that calls itself recursively to maybe navigate a tree or something. So he was all happy and went away, and then we had to talk to him afterward and say, oh, if you're doing this in code, it's just easier to do recursion with methods. But blocks support it quite nicely, and I showed them all the nice things about blocks. It's a new concept to uh, to many people. Yeah, and this is yet another example where some feature of the language can make it very easy to get your bearings of the language and to learn how to do things, but then... Later on, you learn that there are performance implications, and so this is another nice entry point into learning how to use performance measurement tools like uh, time and space profilers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, um, one aspect of blocks that we uh, often use in web frameworks such as Seaside is uh, one called continuations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Continuations are basically, you can think of it as sort of the rest of the computation would be stored in a block, and... um, you can then continue the computation later. On uh, another topic then, uh, recently um, I've been working on my own Smalltalk uh, interpreter for mobile devices, and um, I've had to implement blocks. 
uh, and the funny thing is I've never really gotten into all of the details of blocks before. I've known, for instance, that there are clean blocks, uh, which are the simple ones. There are copying blocks and there are full blocks. And by doing this implementation of uh, my mobile small talk, I actually, actually had to implement all those and thought, wow, that's really cool the way they do this. Yeah, exactly. I first encountered those concepts in VisualWorks, uh, clean blocks being blocks that make uh, effectively no references to outer scopes, so you don't need to make any affordances there. Copying blocks, which make some references to values which can simply be copied, and you'll, you'll still have correct behavior. And then full blocks, which actually need first-class references to outer scopes because you're going to be doing something more complicated. And yeah, depending on what kind of blocks you're using, you can make some optimizations, both at the object memory and at the virtual machine level, that can be very important. And then later in Squeak, where the whole virtual machine is basically a Smalltalk app that you can run in simulation before translating it to machine code, you can get a more visceral sense of this distinction when you are running the virtual machine in simulation and you can see all this stuff happening with the normal Smalltalk tools. So that's an interesting thing to check out if you really want to get a feel for how this stuff works. If you're using the purely handwritten C implementation of a Smalltalk virtual machine, you know, you can still step through all the stuff you need to see, but it's a little more tricky. For full blocks, I was giving an example to um, this uh, new developer of ours. Um, I created a method that took a parameter, stored it in a temporary variable, and then returned an array of two blocks, one that did a get of that variable and one that did a set of the variable. And then from those two blocks, you can see that they're modifying and accessing the same variable. But if you call the method again, then you get a whole new variable with two new blocks that read and write that variable. And even after the method that declared the blocks has exited, has returned, uh, th that variable is still accessible through the blocks. One nice thing about um, blocks in Smalltalk is that we use them for all of our control flow. So even things as simple as ifs, there's no if built into the language. We use uh, a message called if true colon, and uh, then pass it a block as a parameter. And uh, in a talk that uh, Dan Ingalls gave once at uh, Stick 2013, he said that if true is one of his uh, favorite things in Smalltalk. The fact that the blocks were so um, easy to use and powerful that even the basic control structures could be done using blocks. Exactly, and this gets to one of my favorite little bits of Smalltalk history, the, the error message for when you send if true or if false to something which isn't a Boolean. I think it was proceed for truth. <laughs> sort of a note to, to the person using the debugger at the time that if you actually meant this to be the receiver to be a true object, then just proceed and we'll, we'll make it so. But I think that statement transcends its, uh, its use case. It's just a nice motto for small talk in general. Yes. It sounds very deep for some reason. That should definitely be on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, we should do that. Small talk, proceed for truth. I'm James T. Savage, and this is the Small Talk Jobs Report. Williamton, Massachusetts. LightSource Consulting has a position for a software engineer who has a BS degree in computer science or computer engineering, plus 10 plus years of experience. Experience in semiconductor equipment automation software or other capital equipment, strong object oriented development skills, 
and experience with one or more of the following C, C, Smalltalk, VisualWorks, or Java. And experience programming at all levels, high level GUIs down to low level device interfacing. It is considered a plus if you have experience with Unix and Linux. Atlanta, Georgia. Thompson Technologies has a position for a Gemstone DBA who has three plus years of working experience with all of the following. Gemstone Smalltalk 6.x or Gemstone Smalltalk 64-bit, Gemstone Smalltalk Database Administration, Programming and Smalltalk, and experience with Unix shell scripting. It is considered a plus if you have experience with VisualWorks, Store, GBS, and being an Oracle DBA. Minneapolis, Minnesota. ASCII Group and 10 other consulting companies are listing positions for Smalltalk developers who have a bachelor's degree in computer science, information technology, or equivalent, and three plus years of experience with Smalltalk programming and debugging, troubleshooting, with Syncom Object Studio or equivalent. It is considered a plus if you have a background in credit card processing, experience with client server application development, knowledge of Quality Center, and knowledge of Microsoft SharePoint. Depending on the consulting company, the pay for these contracts is listed from 50 to 55 US dollars per hour. The jobs listed in this report are just a few examples of these small talk positions that are currently open across the world. For more details, read our shared blog at smalltalkjobs.com. Good luck with your job hunting. The nice thing about it then is that you can uh, build more complex control structures with it. And in the collections uh, podcast, we talked about control structures like uh, select and collect and reject and inject. Um, all of these are built based on blocks. Right. And in fact, one new one that's uh, been put into the language fairly recently is called if nil colon, where um, instead of testing something, whether it's is nil and then if true, they put them both together and say if nil colon and you can run a block. And the nice thing about it is there's another option called if not nil colon, and that one can optionally take a parameter and give you the thing that you tested to see if it was not nil. So then you can use it inside the block for something, which is really useful. Right. And of course, being able to do all this stuff live in the debugger in an exploratory fashion is extremely useful. Again, we see how many cool features of Smalltalk are sort of connected. By having all of them at once, you create a system that you know, transcends the usefulness of any one of those features. I think they discovered, uh, even after the fact, how uh, some of these uh, features of blocks could be used uh, in different ways. So, for example, for many years, uh, Smalltalk did not have any exception handling. And then uh, it was decided that, yeah, exception handling would probably be a good thing. So the first implementations of exception handling were just done using blocks. And uh, you would take a block, put your code into it, and then say afterward, uh, um, you know, ensure colon another block. So run this block, but if it fails, run this other block, make sure this other block at least runs. Or, or have a block and then say, uh, on error, do. And uh, you can run some exception handling. So uh, there are ways of uh, implementing that without any VM changes using just blocks. And that's how the first implementations worked. 
And nowadays there are VM optimizations for it, but uh, it can be done directly with blocks. Yeah, it's an extremely powerful lever. One thing that uh, we sometimes do is uh, build our own structures using blocks that aren't necessarily control structures, but they just make things a whole lot easier. Uh, one thing, for example, in dictionaries is called at colon, if absent, put colon. And uh, what that does is it goes to a dictionary and asks for the value at a key. But if the key is not there, then it gives a block to evaluate to put a value into the dictionary and use that one instead, which is really cool. And in uh, some code that I was writing recently, I was trying to do some XML parsing and was realizing that uh, many parts of the XML were actually optional. So um, it's kind of hard parsing something with lots of things that are optional uh, because you don't want to constantly be saying, is this there? And if it is, handle it this way. Uh, that's just very painful. So what I did is I wrote a construct for my uh, XML nodes called uh, in colon do colon. And uh, what it did is it looked for a um, an XML node with the uh, the tag in the in part. So I could say, for instance, in person do colon. And then it would, for the do colon, I would have a block that would run if that tag is there. And it would pass that tag into the block as a parameter and then run the block. And that just made the parsing a whole lot easier. I could say in person do and then in full name do and be able to parse down and you know get information out. But if it's not there, then the whole thing doesn't fail. But I don't have to explicitly make tests for it. Oh, sweet. So that gives you really compact code, but still very easy to debug. Absolutely. That's, it was a really cool technique. When I looked at it at the end, it was like, wow, that makes things really readable, but yet optional. Exactly. Uh, really easy to debug, but you know, people who aren't interested in debugging it don't need to you know, do anything complicated to step through it to understand it. It's just uh, it's more self-evident. And the other nice thing about it is that in some cases, the uh, XML had multiple copies of the same thing. So uh, it was set up so it would automatically loop through those multiple copies and possibly call the block several times. So uh, every time you call the block, it was on a different copy of that, that XML node, and it would do some more work, which was pretty cool. Very, yes. So yeah, blocks are uh, really um, interesting uh, bits of small talk to work with. Um, I often say that, that blocks are the most difficult part of the small talk syntax to understand. Not that blocks themselves are difficult to understand, but the rest of the syntax is so bloody simple that blocks just remain as the most complicated thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and at the same time, they really, they really pay off. They really carry their weight for that slight increase in complexity with how cool they are. Yes. Have you ever looked at blocks, for instance, in uh, C-sharp and see how those work, uh, the, their lexical closures? Uh, I've been following Alan Lovejoy's work on the .NET implementation of Smalltalk he's doing. So I've, I've seen a bit about that. Yeah, they're not, not quite as clean and simple and easy to use as in, uh, in Smalltalk. Uh, anytime you have to declare types, it makes the, the blocks much more difficult to deal with. Right. And I've seen uh, attempts to put this into Java and things like that. But um, again, it's, it's very hard to, um, to use blocks in that sort of type language. It, 
a lot of the the type declarations just mess up all the uh, the simplicity of the blocks. Mm-hmm. So I think we have it pretty well in Smalltalk. Yeah, it's kind of a frustrating feeling there. You have most of the coolness of it, but if you just had that extra little bit, you could be so much more powerful. Right. Uh, so uh, one thing I did find, though, if I was to mention any negatives about blocks, is that they do become more complex when you use them because uh, uh, you may have to uh, dive in several levels in your debugger to get into a block. Now, fortunately, debuggers these days know about blocks and they have an option usually to step into the block directly without going through all the intervening method calls to get there. So that's a pretty cool uh, facility of the debuggers. Yeah, and blocks are another thing which, like most cool things, can be abused if you don't quite understand them or the best practice patterns uh, that surround them. We mentioned earlier the similarities between blocks and normal methods, and if the programmer is confused about that, there can be some serious abuse of blocks where you're sort of reinventing the wheel when you don't need to. Uh, I've seen places where people create dictionaries and put blocks in them, and they're basically recapitulating a method dictionary without realizing it. Mm-hmm. I've seen places where people use uh, blocks, well, left, right, and center, and then take the whole thing and um, basically store it into uh, a flat file format and store it into their database so they have actual blocks stored with the bytecodes in the database. And uh, then when they bring it back in, those blocks instantiate back in and become blocks again. That gets really weird. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Well, and as a musician, I'm very concerned with timing in general. And one uh, dangerous place you can get into with blocks is just expecting them to work the way they used to a long time later, especially if you're storing them somewhere. For example, if you're using external resources inside a blocks code, you know, a, a socket or something, that thing may be completely irrelevant when you try to evaluate that block sometime in the future. So that's another thing you have to be careful about. Yeah, and yet another thing is uh, what I ran into, this was a number of years ago, we uh, were upgrading from an older version of, in this case, VisualWorks Smalltalk to a newer version and found that between those two versions, the vendor had made changes to the virtual machine to change all the bytecodes around. And the bytecodes that were stored in the database for the old blocks would no longer run in the new environment. And uh, I had assurances from Elliot Miranda at the time that there's no way to make them work because the whole structure of the code around it was wrong as well. So we had to find some way to translate those old blocks into new blocks. So that was one of my challenges for that upgrade. I, I managed to do it, but it was definitely a challenge. I think Smalltalk's paraphrase of the old Stan Lee quote would be, with great power comes great tools and great programmers to use them. That's how someone actually takes action on that responsibility. It's uh, great tools. Of course, the, the negative way of looking at that is with great power comes great technical debt. But I think we've met that challenge very well in Smalltalk. So uh, as you say, when, when I see designs that heavily depend on blocks, especially if they're taking those blocks and storing them into variables or storing them into control structures, I usually question it and say, is it really necessary? Is it, is it worth the complexity of having those blocks there? Because one of the problems is when you get to that block, there's no way to easily understand what that block is going to do without actually executing it. It's not like you can navigate through it and 
find out you know what's what this thing is and uh, the source code isn't stored in uh, a nice way like it would be in a method it's it's stored but uh, it's harder to find where that method is now yeah that opens up a whole new set of possibilities uh, for tools which can infer things mm-hmm uh, well, at least the tools these days can decompile blocks, which in the old days with VisualWorks, you could never decompile a block before. But now you can. Yeah, yeah. now that everyone just takes that for granted. Mm-hmm. For me, blocks are one of my favorite things in Smalltalk. I'm not going to say my favorite thing, but one of the favorite things. I would call them one of the pillars of live coding. And live coding and dynamism are what make me most excited about Smalltalk. Yes, definitely. Very exciting. I think that pretty much covers it. So thank you very much, Craig. Sure, thank you. You can email us at smalltalkreflections at thiscontext.com. You can tweet me with at buckdk. And you can tweet to me at c-c-r-r-a-a-i-i-g-g. You can visit our blog at smalltalkreflections.blogspot.ca and leave a comment there. Or you can post a review on iTunes. Craig Ladder performed the music and edited the podcast, and we'll see you next week. See you later.